Hey friends, Miranda was out sick this week, but I'm thrilled for you to hear my rich conversation with writer Jessica Slice on disabled parenting. Just a heads up that starting with today's episode, we'll be shifting to an every other week release of our regular episodes. Tomorrow, we will be recording a very special episode of the Mother Culture Movie Club with Tracy Clark Flory, which will release this Friday. We're going to be reacting to tomorrow's Oscar nomination announcements and getting into the many fascinating portrayals of women, and particularly mothers, in the biggest movies of the year. That episode and future episodes of The Movie Club will only be available to our paid Patreon community. So if you're a fan of the podcast and you can spare just $5 a month to support our production and get access to these episodes, head over to patreon.com slash motherculturepod and join us. We have lots of exciting new ideas in store, so even if you're not in a position to pay, joining our free Patreon will keep you updated. That's patreon.com slash motherculturepod. We're so happy to have you with us. This is Sarah Wheeler, and Miranda Rake has COVID, and this is Mother Culture, where we take on motherhood through the lens of culture and culture through the lens of motherhood. Welcome to Mother Culture. I am flying solo today, um, but I'm not completely alone. I have very good company for a guest Jessica Slice is on the podcast today. She is an author, a speaker, an essayist who's been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Glamour, Cosmo, etc. And her book, Unfit Parent, about disabled parenting, comes out this year. And I had the privilege of reading it uh, just furiously over the last few weeks, um, and highlighting like mad. And I'm super pumped to talk to her about it today. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. And you are, you know, it's out with a few blurbers, but you are the first person I'm talking to who is not (gasps) a friend who read it. But we're going to be friends by the time this is over. (laughs) Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean that as an insult. (laughs) No, but a stranger did read your book. Yeah, and it, um, I'm here to tell you, it's okay. It turned, (laughs) like, it's okay (laughs) to have someone you don't know read your book. I do think that is a threshold. And, um, and with this particular book, it's, it's more than okay, because it's just, it's just tremendous. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's really scary, this stage. I sent it to a few friends and said, um, I'm not going to make any big edits now. So I'm not looking for feedback. I'm just looking for you to ease the transition from me alone writing this book to people thinking about it and talking about it and possibly criticizing it. I just need some like ease in that transition. Yeah, that um, that makes a lot of sense to me. And it also, I think, makes me think about one of the many topics I, I want to get into with you today, which is... Um, like asking for what you need and um and and kind of how the world of disability and the world of motherhood kind of bring up um you know different experiences around having needs and being explicit about getting the care that you want i think like it seems kind of silly but that totally popped into my mind when you were talking about how explicit you were with people about like this is i don't want your feedback (laughs) this is what this is for (laughs) Um, yeah. So we'll get your wisdom on that um, 
very soon, imminently. Um, I wanted to mention, Jessica, that I I first encountered you, I'm sure, like uh, many people in Alice Wong's best-selling Disability Visibility, which is another book I would recommend to everyone. It's a fabulous collection of essays on disability. Um, Alice Wong is, you know, in the disability world, really well-known and and also, I think, known by a lot of people as um, a writer and an activist um, around disability. She's one of the many people that are based in the San Francisco Bay Area where I live, so I get to be kind of steeped in that. Mm -hmm. And... um, I assigned the essay um, actually for a class I teach um, on for like a decade. I've taught this course on neurodiversity and disability for teachers. Mm. And um, your essay about imposter syndrome and parenting with a disability um, was one of the ones I I had them read. And, And again, I think like all your writing, it's partly because it it does for anyone who, you know, hasn't spent a lot of time in disabled spaces, it's a it's a great window into, you know, one version of that world, but it's also just about it's so relatable. Um and it it also just is an essay that I was assigning to teachers about like what it's like to be a parent. Um yeah, and how you. you can have empathy for parents. So, um yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, my specific lens is that I was not disabled until I was 28 and didn't, you know, didn't start identifying as disabled until my really mid thirties and I'm 41 now. Um, And so I think I have, I have some entitlement of having spent a few decades not disabled and the world of disability is still fairly fresh to me. And I've obviously spent a lot of time examining it, but um, when I feel mistreated or when I am mistreated or something hits me wrong, it's coming from a place of spending so much of my life not being treated that way. Um, And so I think I have, yeah, yeah, I think I'm a little bit entitled as a disabled person. Yeah. When you say that, you mean um, like you still hold on to the entitlement that you had when you were able-bodied. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm Mm -hmm. like, yeah, it just... I don't think I had it sort of crushed out of me over those first decades, like so many people who were born disabled have, you know, when I speak to disabled friends, they, they've made the same comment that I get a little more outraged. And right, because you, there's something in you that still assumes that people will care for you or accommodate you or just kind of be Believe thoughtful me. about your experience. Believe you. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's a huge yeah. theme in, in the book that um that that I found really powerful. So um will you start with giving our listeners a little bit of context about that story, your journey? The book starts with the story of, you know, as you mentioned, how you became disabled in your 20s. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So the truth is, you know, I had a disability my whole life and didn't know it, um, mm. but it did not impact, you know, what I could do on a daily basis. So when I was 28, I was on a hike on Santorini in Greece. And at that time of my life, I was very active and very busy. I would wake up most days and run seven to 10 miles, which 
is it's absurd yeah (laughs) um and so going on a five mile hike was not did not seem to be a big deal but Mm. the sun in greece is a little different and i just started to feel pretty sick about halfway through and my then partner and i realized we hadn't packed enough water and didn't have enough snacks and so i had this like slight sense of foreboding and then um it was about halfway through that a pack of wild dogs stepped in front of us on the path and they were growling and it was it was terrifying it was you know maybe the first moment in my life where i felt truly uh like i was in a life-threatening situation and we had to scramble up this hillside it's kind of brush covered hillside to get away from the dogs um and then take a wide berth around from the path in order to get to the destination where we could get a taxi and get food and so the hike ended up being much longer than expected and all that to say by the time we made it to the little village or city at the end i had heat exhaustion Mm. and I was shaking and nauseated and um, vomited, but I had had it a couple times in my life growing up in the South. And as a runner, I knew the symptoms. And so I rested and expected the next day I would be back to myself. Um, But I woke up the next day and it felt like I was behind a bubble. It felt really strange. And I stood up and got out of bed and fell to the floor and couldn't couldn't even walk Mm. down the hallway and um i didn't end up ever getting better from that day uh it and what i found out two years in after many doctor's appointments and a lot of time being disbelieved was that i had developed pots from heat exhaustion on the hike um and pots which a lot of people know now because of long covid but pots is an autonomic nervous system dysfunction so i developed uh, intolerance for being upright for extreme temperatures some difficulty with digestion um, and just general dysfunction of my autonomic nervous system Um, but i think for so long i really thought something specific or magical had happened on that hill with the dogs like it it felt like so... a Greek, some Greek yes! mythology, cur- like a, yeah. Yeah, it's like surely the it, dogs are, is this epic. moment is at the root of this. Mm-hmm. But as it turns out, I have a genetic disorder, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, um, which causes POTS. And so the stressful situation or that, you know, bodily stressful situation that triggered it in my case was heat exhaustion, but it likely would have been triggered at some point yeah anyway yeah yeah um but it did happen on a greek hillside with a pack of wild dogs it it makes for a, a pretty you know a more kind of i don't know at least externally colorful story than, <laughs> than cinematic. most about yeah. that yeah that moment of becoming disabled well it, and you know it's interesting especially hearing you tell it in such a shortened version compared to the book um you know, in hindsight, it's like, you know, yeah, this happened to me and I thought it would go away. And then two years later, I, I figured out what it was. And I mean, you mentioned a little bit about what happened in between, but but I think the the in between is so 
rich and has a lot of implications for some of the challenges um, that a lot of people face in our society, you know, mm -hmm. which is that you, you spent two years trying to convince people that something was actually going on with you. Um, yeah. And like this, you know, having this simultaneous experience of something, you know, happening to you that you don't understand and dealing with your body, right, and trying to adjust to it and trying to take care of it. But also on this psychological and emotional level, just trying to like get other humans, medical professionals, you know, friends and family to take you seriously. That that's a lot. It is. And I think what people who haven't experienced maybe don't always realize is that you start, at least I did, I started to believe the people who told me I wasn't sick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's and, the worst thing, right? That's like the, yeah. I mean, in the, in the brain, at least like, you know, psychologically, it's like the worst possible outcome to start oh, doubting awful. yourself. And I, the way I ended up getting diagnosed, I don't think I wrote this whole story in the book. Um, I think you did. The, the about therapist. the psychi psychiatrist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, like, and you, I hear this a lot actually with, you know, I, I'm an educational psychologist. Right. I diagnose people, you know, not with things like POTS, but with, um, you know, with other kinds of diagnoses. And it is it's so often that like one person offhand, especially with these rare things, is like, I read an article about this. And then right. that's the answer. And you're like, why didn't all of these people who spent all this time with me bring this up or know well, about this? Yeah. And I kept seeing doctors. I saw cardiologists and they kept saying, you know, are you sure you're not just hyper fixated on your body? Are mm -hmm. you sure you're not just obsessed with your own symptoms? And in the meantime, I had dropped so much weight in a way that was really terrifying. I just mm -hmm. felt like my body, like I felt like I was vanishing. My skin had turned yellow. I was growing little tiny hairs all over my body. My mouth yeah. inside was covered with blood blisters. I mean, it was a really viscerally terrifying time and I then believed that I had somehow made this all up and so I saw a psychiatrist and said um okay I've done this to myself can you fix me I mm. I am so oh. messed up that I have done this and he listened and so much grace in that moment that he really heard my story and he said you know I think you have a um, neurological heart condition that another patient had years ago. And he referred me to a tilt table test, um, which is just incredible. And I actually went back to see him after and thank oh. him um, because it transformed my life. I mean, I really worried that I would die. And he, um, yeah, he gave me a lifeline out of it by not, by assuming it might or you know by really listening and thinking yeah. that it might not be under his umbrella of specialty yeah yeah and well and also taking you seriously which which you talk about in the book is is um part you know happens less with women yeah. um yeah. that professionals take women seriously and and really with disabled people um that that people have a really hard time listening to disabled people and, yes. you know, and you know, then, you know, that even after that diagnosis, um, it took you much longer to identify as disabled. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, I did. And and I love that term. Um, it's something, you know, I, I read and think a lot about, but I think most people don't, is disability as identity. So mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about what that process was like? How did it change you? What did you have to grapple with in order to really see yourself as a disabled person? And, and what did that mean to you? Yeah, I don't know how much I had really thought about the word disabled. Yeah. Um, but it kept coming up. You know, I when I got diagnosed, the first thing the doctor did was give me a disabled placard for my car so I could park closer to stores. Um, I applied for it's like the one the one perk that society <laughs> allows. I mean, there's lots of deeper perks that again you will illuminate for us, but like it's the one yeah. surface thing. We're like, well, we'll let's like, you know, systematically oppress them and um, you know, uh oscillate between, you know, making disabled people heroes and um and uh villains. And, but we'll give them the placard. Yeah, we'll you can park a little closer. So and and then I had I, you know, I applied for disability insurance and uh or disability income and was granted that eventually, um, after some appeals and so I was, you know, in many ways officially disabled. And then when I started grad school for social work, I had to register with disabled student services. Um, but I really, if someone had asked, are you disabled? I would have said, no, no. Um, wow. I also used a wheelchair. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. now that I look back, I'm like this, I definitely was just ignoring this. Um, and I hadn't thought much about it. I thought. Yeah. I thought it was a, I don't know. I don't know why I didn't think I was. I think I just didn't engage. And then I thought I was sick. I thought I yeah, had done well, that, and then I was sick. Well, that's a really interesting distinction, I think, because when we talk about being sick, we do, it, it, we, it does like automatically kind of pull with it the concept of being well, right? Um, I have, I, I've been, um, I've been dealing for like six months almost with this like recurring dizziness mm. and um, and it happened very suddenly. There were no dogs. Unfortunately, <laughs> I don't. It's not a great story. You I just was Greece. like, I wasn't in Greece. I did go to like a pretty I did go to a Carly Rae Jepsen concert in L.A. Okay. and it was just amazing. And I'm like, that's maybe that's like that was the magic that triggered it. And like two <laughs> days later, I just was kind of like on the ground with vertigo. Mm. And um, and really kind of in bed for like six weeks. And then slowly since then, I've been going through these slightly lessening cycles of like being kind of OK and then being really dizzy and tired for mm -hmm. days on end. Mm -hmm. um, mm. And and I so I really related to um, all of your portraits of kind of that dual effort of like trying to understand yourself and take care of yourself and trying to advocate for yourself in, in the medical world. And then, mm -hmm. you know, how trying to express to the people around you, what's going on with you and what kind of care you need. And I do think that kind of sick, well dichotomy has been a real, um, sticky point for me because like, you know, it's like, if you are getting, you know, chemo, I mean, really, cancer is not a sick well either, right? It's way mm -hmm. more of a lifelong mm -hmm. back and forth thing than than we want to accept. But, you know, it's like people have a schema for that. And it's like, OK, mm -hmm. you, you're doing this treatment when it's done, it'll be over. And during that time, you know, we'll make you meals 
and um, people will come help you. And then to kind of have this other thing where it's like, I don't really know how long I'm going to be unwell. I don't know when it happens and when it's not. It's more like a chronic illness. People don't have a template for that. And, um, And I took it really personally at first, but then I just kind of understood that that's like what's available in our culture is like you get sick, you get better. Um, And if you don't write what's left for you, I I think it makes sense to me that it took you a long time to kind of, um, I don't know if you would say accept or realize or um, that, that, you know, that this was really part of who you were. Yeah. I mean, listening to you talk, the thing I kept thinking is that sick is very much in relationship to well, you know, it's a, yeah. an absence of wellness. And right. even though disability, the word, like the root of the word is not able, but but disability itself is an identity. And what I've discovered in dis- disability culture and in my own identity as disabled is that it itself has richness. And yes. So it's a it's sort of a yes identity instead of an absence of a different identity. Um, but also, I think the thing with almost any identity is that it's porous and disability is the same. You know, the way I define it is and, and, and that's based on a theory from a philosopher, Elizabeth Barnes, is that it is someone who benefits from the disability rights movement. So if you have a body or a mind and the functions of that body and mind benefit from the disability rights movement, you have the right to claim disability. And under that umbrella, and and it's a right to claim, you know, I would never demand that someone claim it, but under Mm. that umbrella, kind of everyone can claim it because anyone who pushes a stroller up a curb cut Mm -hmm. is benefiting from the disability rights movement. And I don't think that cheapens the definition. I actually think, um, acknowledging our collective frailty and our collective needy bodies and mind and the fact that we all die and we all need and our bodies fluctuate i think there's a lot of power and freedom in that and so i think sort of a porous and open definition of disability is actually like the most accurate and the most um promising yeah yeah i i think i see that sentiment um repeated a lot uh um, from disabled writers and thinkers. I, I, Lucy Webster writes mm-hmm. um, this newsletter, do you, The View From Down Here, and I think she just came out with a book. And um, I remember her writing recently in response to some, like, you know, hullabaloo in the media. Like, it, if you think you're disabled, like, you're disabled. You know, right. <laughs> like, if you, you know, if you have ADHD or you think you have ADHD, uh, you know, and you're kind of like, worried about whether you get to be part of this group. Like, you know, I have a very different condition. It's like, come on, welcome to the club. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So I, I think that inclusiveness is, is lovely. I I had a, um, a friend, um, Andrew Leland, who, um, Mm. wrote a fabulous book this year on, yeah, um, I've just started it. I'm, did you? Yeah. In the country of the blind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, it's about his, his blindness and, um, it has a lot of the themes that we've just been talking about in it, but I was writing him about kind of my 
well, I guess I'd call it my illness. I don't know what to, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is. This is interesting. Um, and about how I was actually, you know, getting so much from um, disabled writers about, like you mm-hmm. said, it's not this absence, it's this kind of presence of something. And that disability culture was kind of helping me um, process what was going on with myself. And then I kind of did a like, not that I, I, I don't like mean to say that I'm disabled. And he was like, I, I think if you want to say you're disabled, it's fine. <laughs> like nobody. <Yeah. laughs> um, but, you know, anytime something does become an identity, we do have this ticky tackiness around who gets to say it. But I think most of that comes from the non-disabled police and not actually people who are part of that community. Well, and the nature of disability is it it's kind of a reference, oblique or direct, to our mortality. And people have pretty strong feelings about mortality and fragility. And so yeah. I think disability feels really tricky to people because it's saying I'm not invincible physically, you know, either physically or mentally, or, you know, for all of us both. And and that is a hard reality of being a person. So you talk about um, invincibility, and Mm -hmm. that leads me to one of the big themes of your book that really relate to parenting, which is around perfectionism and what happens to parents when we have, you know, what I think you would view as internalized ableism that, um, that, you know, sets us up for problems when we become parents and how your experience was a little bit different. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think the two, the invincibility, I don't know that I even thought of it in that word, but that is it, you know, and I think the two parts of parenting that disability really makes impossible are perfectionism and control. Yeah, control was the other, like, word I wrote in big letters. (laughs) Yeah, this idea that um, a good life or being a good parent or uh, a good experience is up to us. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of doing a very good job and planning well and buying the right things and not getting tired and, you know, unflagging uh, energy. All of that is impossible with many disabilities, including mine. I'd say most, almost all. And so I think what I learned, you know, what I have learned as a disabled parent is that, one, those goals are impossible for all of us, but also, like, and I think more importantly, we are very, very bad at predicting what makes life good. Yeah. And so those goals aren't even worthwhile anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and and I think that's what I learn so consistently as a disabled person is just how terrible we are at predicting um predicting what will make us happy or what will make our days worthwhile or what will feel complete. And I really have my disabled body and disability culture and disabled community to thank for that, for that realization. For just accepting that that's not something we can possibly do is, is, you know, is 
I think you you talk about a limited we have a limited ability to orchestrate our future and like the sooner we realize that um the easier life will be and particularly parenting which is where so much of our need for control and mm-hmm. like an input output system you know comes up well our our ability to orchestrate is limited but also even if we could orchestrate our yes. ability to know what we would want what we actually should orchestrate is also limited. Mm-hmm. Like we're just kind of wrong about what's good. And um, and that's really freeing, actually, and depressing and scary and, you know, lots of hard things, too. Yeah, freedom is like the thing, the last stage of, <laughs> of I think, processing that. Um, yeah, you have this great anecdote um, about, and I live in Oakland where you were living at the time, so I... I could really visualize this about going to like a new mom group. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of fodder in there. Some of it is, you know, we can get mean about our new mom groups, but I, no, I think what yeah. you're saying is, is with a lot of compassion. And I'll just, I'll just read this quote if you'll tolerate it. I know I'm yeah. the, the first stranger who read your book. So this is the kind of thing you're going to have to deal with, Jessica. People just yeah. coming up to you. And spewing quotes from Uh, from with some flop sweat on my end. That sounds (laughs) exactly, yeah, a reasonable amount. You want a little bit of flop sweat so people know you care. (laughs) Um, You said about the mom group, it's not the amount of money they were spending that struck me. You're talking about like the fancy stroller compared to like your little, you know, easy to fold, cheap one. Yeah, but a general sense that they felt that these choices, which seem small to me, were critical. If I imagine the person I was before becoming disabled and think about her parenting, I can see that I would have been much more like the other women in my group. In my 20s, I thought I could achieve perfection and that goodness was a matter of the right choices and hard work. Yeah, I just really thought that. Loved that quote. And, And then I think you show with grace how you become a parent and, you know, all of this work that you've done, I mean, a long process that you describe, right, of except of, you know, really identifying as disabled allows you to let go of, of right, not, not just the perfectionism you mentioned, but like the, I don't know, what would you call this? Like, is it entitlement? Like that this idea that we know what will make us and our kids happy? What is that? What is that? I mean, it's like I think omnipotence. We know, I would say we know deep inside that we don't know, but we we are in a position to, you know, before my disability, I was in a position to at least delude myself yeah. that it was up to me mm-hmm. or that I uh, that I had any sense of where happiness, like where I could reach happiness. Um, Yeah, I don't know what I would call that, though. It is a delusion, but I don't know what I would have called it at the time. I knew, I thought I knew, and people, but people talk about it like it's obvious. Like they say all, uh, yeah, I want to be specific because people say all that matters is that my baby is healthy. All that matters is your health. Um, And I would say, well, uh, I don't think so. No, like that's not my experience, actually. I just want a healthy baby, right? I just want, you know, I don't Mm -hmm. care the sex as long as it's healthy. I'm like, well, I mean, 
probably don't care about the sex either, but like the health, like that's not a promise of anything, but also an unhealthy baby isn't a promise of anything negative. Um, you know, there's something I talk about in the book called the disability paradox, which is a philosophical uh, exercise that people go back to regularly. Well, it's a it's a study that was done and continues to be done. And then people keep go philosophers keep going back to it, which is um, if you interview not disabled people and ask what they would expect the quality of life of disabled people to be, they say pretty low, pretty low happiness, yeah. pretty low self-reported quality of life. Um, and if you ask a disabled person, they say uh, it's actually quite good. Like disabled people on average have equal to or higher quality of life than non-disabled people, which really goes against everything we assume to be true about being a person. Um, and, you know, th there's been a lot of discussions and uh, theories about why that is. And no one no one really knows. But but what you can glean from it is that we don't know what makes a good life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we it's it's kind of like um, you know, this collective delusion. It's like there's this script that you get, and certainly for parents about like, you know, what um a happy child is, right? Mm -hmm. What a good parent is. And um if you if you have the I don't want to say capacity, you know, whatever, if you have the resources to kind of pretend to follow that you can convince yourself that everything's going to be okay mm -hmm. and i think i see you know disability is like takes that off the table yeah um so you have to build something else and what you build is something way better you do um, and, I, and the reason is i think because there's some truth to it that we're not constantly running from our fragility yeah which yeah which like uh corrodes um there was this, I, I don't know what you thought about the chapter about the first week. I, you know, it's a little, I think it's a little bit of a tricky chapter hmm. um, because of the way those interviews went. And then the chapter I ended up writing, um, I, would it be useful for me to talk about what I found during those interviews? Yeah. So you did, uh, I'll just give for, for context, you, you wrote, a, I thought it was beautiful. You wrote a beautiful chapter about your first week um, with, um, with your child who was who was adopted, who then was you know a foster child, but an infant, right. and your first week at home with an infant, and um, and then you went on kind of you 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 had some questions that arose from that, like why is this you know this this was hard. It's like the hardest thing I ever did, but it also was I was happy. Um, but the more I talked to other parents about that first week of coming home with a baby it feels like a trauma. And so what is right. this disparity? And so you go on to kind of interview a range of parents. I thought it was really interesting. I'd love for you to tell us more about it. Yeah. So the we so we did not know we were going to be parents until 12 hours before we met our daughter. Uh, we got a call that there was a baby who needed a place to stay for a couple of weeks. And we really didn't have newborn supplies. We were prepared to foster all the way up until age 12. And so you can't prepare your house for every age from zero to 12. So we sort of were prepared for nothing. 
No, uh, every like four months, I have to totally change my right. house because my children have gotten older. It's right. Yeah, a room that. for every single age just does not. Yeah, exist. Yeah. Um, so we had you know, we had a crib, and and really that was it. Uh, and we because it was only going to be a couple weeks, and we had just another foster child had returned to his mom a week before. Um, my husband went to work, and I went to the hospital. Uh, and met our daughter and brought her home. And I knew nothing. Um, I posted on the Nextdoor app and said, we unexpectedly have a newborn. Does anyone have any supplies? And our Oakland neighbors just dropped off so many supplies. A doula um, offered to come by and help us get set up. It was really, really beautiful. Um, yeah. And then that day began... I would say what is the happiest month or probably six months of my life. I felt like that I was so in my own body and in my own life and so satisfied and grounded that it, it was a, a type of contentment and purpose that I had never experienced. Um, and I didn't know if our daughter would be staying, you know, I thought she might be there a couple weeks and then we thought maybe a couple months. Um, she, you know, we kept having to go to the doctor to follow up on some stuff and that didn't bother me. Uh, as you mentioned with the baby stroller, our baby supplies were ridiculous looking back. <laughs> Like the, the stroller, we should not have been using. It was a stroller for six months. Like old. a doll stroller, was it? It was like a doll stroller. She was like slouched <laughs> over to the side. I mean, yeah, they're fine. It was not a, it was not like a shiny, happy looking time, but it was so, I felt so right. And, um, and so when I was writing that chapter of the book, I contacted our doula and our, she ended up um, helping us nights for a while um, or some nights for a while. And, I asked her, what did you observe during that time? And she said, I've never seen anything like it. She's like, the peace in your house was like unprecedented in my work as a night doula. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also have observed that so many of my friends experienced like a dark night of the soul during those first weeks and first yes. months. Um, well said. And, and I had seen that. And I knew part of it was that I had not given birth. Um, but I also knew that like I experienced a great deal of physical pain and discomfort on a daily basis. Um, you know, but yes, I had not given birth. I was not living with a postpartum body. And I think that is really important. But I also observed that for adoptive parents, that time is also very, very challenging getting interesting the kids. And so I decided to interview a bunch of disabled parents and non-disabled parents and ask about those first weeks. And what I found was that uh, with, with the exception of one interview, every disabled parent said, oh yeah, those weeks were fine. Those were good. Uh, and then every non-disabled, without exception, said it was the hardest week of my life. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, well, what's there? Like what? Yeah. What's that mechanism? Yeah. What is that? And the, the one of the conclusions I came to is that disability has pried perfectionism and control from our hands like with such violence that by the time we're parents, we don't think 
those that week will go well um so we're yeah i think even saying that but i do think that's it i think that's some of it and that um because if i imagine myself before i was disabled i think every complication would have felt much more impossible to me but it's not like i've become tougher i think i would have felt like i should be better at it or things should be better i would have thought that the perfection in that first week was possible i think the fragility of a postpartum body is maybe more familiar to a disabled person yeah you have this line that kind of knocked me over the head that was like one way to think about the first week is that it's the time during which a large portion of a family is or becomes disabled. And it it is like I, I that was like I I really floored me um that that is it's like this um really like you said really rapid shocking kind of thrust into a version of disability um that a lot of us I you know don't expect we will experience right and yeah. And you talk about, will you talk a little bit about, you, you mentioned um, that you saw some differences among the non-disabled people you interviewed, like based on kind of life experiences. Right. Right. Yeah. My, you know, one of my closest friends, we talked a lot for this chapter and she's in the book and she uh, had encountered some trauma in her early life. She's black. She had like she had and has really um, wrestled with her experience of racism and written about it a lot. And I don't know, she didn't experience quite as much uh, inner darkness during the first week. What she did experience was a great deal of difficulty uh, dealing with a fragile body. She kept trying to mm -hmm. overperform and then receive, you know, and then experiencing setbacks. Um, but so, so one example is a, you know, non-disabled person I interviewed, uh, told these stories about how awful the walk was from her apartment to the hospital where her baby had to go for regular checks during the first week. Um, I think for Billy Rubin stuff. And she's like that walk. I kept thinking I was going to die. I thought this would never get better. And all I kept thinking during that interview was like, why didn't someone get you a fucking wheelchair? Yeah. Like you don't have to mm. walk. Mm -hmm. And and I and and I guess to be clear in that chapter, I don't think it's non-disabled birthing people or parents fault. I it's like society has tricked us all into thinking life should look one way and when it doesn't you feel bad. You like you feel like you are bad. You feel like something's wrong yeah. with you. Um, yeah, I think that tracks. I mean, you you make it really clear in the book that it's not your disability that, um, you know, brings you shame. It's internalized ableism. Right. Right. And so, you know, ableism is this idea that, you know, it's better to not be disabled. Right. That's right. like you said, that's a better quality of life, which it turns out to be not false. And that, you know, and that also kind of a bit a bit of like life is a video game where you're just trying not to get disabled, even though everybody eventually <laughs> will be or dead. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and so this idea that, you know, coming home with a baby 
is kind of experiencing a disability. I mean, particularly for, for example, that, that woman who's really feeling, um, you know, her body not being able to do what it could do and feeling pain. It's mm -hmm. not just that fact, right? It, it's what the environment is that kind of welcomes us during that time. And if you live in an ableist world that is not really accessible to disabled people and to parents, that's right. how you get, you know, not being offered a wheelchair, right? Right. Um, that's how you get the kind of shame around, well, I should be able to walk my kid. Um, and so it's just kind of another example, I think, of, of something you bring up in the book a lot, which is that like the, well, we all have access needs is something that, you know, disabled writers talk a lot about. Accessibility mm -hmm. is something we talk about for disabled people, but actually we all need accessibility, right? We all need to be able to get to the second floor of a building. Mm -hmm. You talk about this, but, you know, we chose stairs as the way to do that. <laughs> That's pretty arbitrary, right? It's for a certain group of, of people. Um, and it's invented. It's part of our environment. It's yeah. not, you know, a, a reality of being human that the only way to get to another level is by stairs. Right. Um, and so, so, you know, so one of those experiences of kind of becoming disabled, if you want to call it that as for a new parent, is that you realize that your access needs are not being cared about. Mm -hmm. Um, like that even for, I think this is what you saw in some of the parents you interviewed, and I experienced this, like, you know, for someone with a lot of privilege, even being a woman who's like kind of used to not being considered a lot, um, all of a sudden being a parent, I was like, what, what? I'm marginalized? Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, I was dealing with the grief of, like you said, your other disabled friends, you know, of like maybe entitlement mm -hmm. around, like, I'm not used to I can't believe how much the world is not set up for me, right? My partner right. doesn't have leave. I can't, mm -hmm. right, I, I don't have a means to get to this appointment. Um, there isn't a changing table in here. And the logistics of that are difficult, but it also um, is a form of grief and kind of aggression from the world around you and rejection um, that I think, like you said, you, you, you'd already experienced a lot being disabled. Um, so I do think that's part of the, the shock, as you point out. And there's another um, really beautiful moment that I think illustrates that difference between you that the doula said, where she, she comes in and you're, um, because like standing at the, uh, at the like counter doing bottles was not sustainable for your body. You're mm -hmm. on the ground preparing bottles for your baby so you can be more <laughs> comfortable. <laughs> and she talks about noticing that and saying, you know, you never pretended that you didn't have needs. And that's part of what set you apart, too, that you you were comfortable with acknowledging that you had needs and with care. And you talk mm -hmm. about fear of disability as fear of care. I thought that was really interesting. Mm -hmm. And. And I think that's part of, too, the the shock and the difficulty of not just those early parenting days, but like, you know, I have a five and an eight year old right. now that, you know, that accepting your own needs um, and asking for care is not something in an ableist society that we're used to, but it's something that parents need. So can you talk a little bit about how learning to pay closer attention to your body and your needs has impacted your parenting? Yeah, I mean, I think it, 
I think one way that I'm a very good parent, and I think a lot of it is wrapped up in my practice of uh, paying attention to my needs, is that I'm a very, I'm a present parent. Mm. When I'm with Khalil, I'm really with her. Um, I think there's a slowness that disability has like shoehorned into my type A manic personality that has made me a present and patient parent. Um, I, I don't know if that's exactly what you were asking with the question, but I do think it is a real impact that because I'm always sort of paying attention to my body and to my needs, that I'm also just paying attention in general to the moment I'm in. Uh, yeah, that makes sense to me. And I, I think our family has a real joy around needs and kind of a silliness around it and an acceptance of different needs. Um, I'm actually the only one in my house who's not neurodivergent. And mm -hmm. um, so we all talk about our needs uh, in a yeah, kind of in a joyful way. Uh, and I think that only comes from my, my acceptance of, of the care I need or the limits. Yeah, my own limit. Um, yeah, this is really interesting to think about. Yeah, that's so beautiful. I'm thinking about the the anecdote that you end the book on, which is um, your daughter's birthday party and um, kind of prepping your daughter for it and that she might get overwhelmed. And you kind of talk to her about how she can ask for a break if she needs it. And what would, you, what would that look like? How, what would her little signal be? Um, I can't remember what she, does she like make a, she makes a B? What is it again? No, she goes, E-T. She goes, oh, E-T is her secret code. I, but she I really, says it like she's E-T. <laughs> yeah, well, it makes it more fun. Yeah. It makes it less, you know, um, it makes it less weighty to ask for yeah. what you need when it's fun. I find when I work with um, children and in classrooms around like how can, um, kids signal that they need something, we often come up with something silly like that. Mm -hmm. um, or in my in my home, um, when you really mean stop, like you're wrestling with your sibling or whatever, yes. you say stop mac and cheese. Um, <laughs> oh, that's great. Because it, it just takes a little bit of the edge off of like yeah. demanding something of someone. So, okay, so she said E.T. E and then she, you know, you just, it's just beautiful. You She takes a little breaks from her birthday party and it's not some big revolutionary moment, but I think it illustrates what you're describing. And it's when I talk to parents who are going through their child got a diagnosis like like autism, mm -hmm. I I try my best to like paint them a picture of that, that like I know this is a journey. Acceptance mm -hmm. is difficult. Your fear is probably coming in a lot. But the promise of this is that if you tend to it, you will have a child who knows who they are and how to advocate for what they need. And mm -hmm. that is something that, you know, I'm like 40. I'm still working on that. But I mm -hmm. see children, particularly neurodivergent and disabled ones all the time who are just masters of that. Mm hmm. Yeah. And who 
But you also you have a child who identifies needs, but also a household who comes yeah. to terms with the fact that there's not one way to be a person. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I think that's a really uh, that can be a very joyful way to have a household is to accept everyone's, you know, everyone's quirks. And yeah, the and what I really, you know, it's interesting about the birthday party. I didn't think that Khalil getting overwhelmed was even a negative thing. In fact, for me, I, yeah, they were some of my favorite times during the party because she, you know, my wheelchair has been a place that has been safe for her for her whole life. And so when she would say ET, I would go to her, you know, I kind of always had one ear listening. And if I heard ET, I would go to her and she would climb onto my wheelchair and we would ride together away from the party and she'd lean her head on my chest, which is a place that feels really safe for her and feels so good to me. It, it's like when I feel the most connected to her and we would just sort of rest there for a bit. Um, and when she she told me when she was ready to go back, she'd let me know by lifting one finger up like E.T. does. and <laughs> With a little like wag. Yeah. So she we wouldn't talk, you know, because part of taking a break is quiet. And we would yeah. just sit there and then she would lift a finger up and we'd go back and I'd keep chatting with the parents and she'd go back to her friends. And what a gift to have a wheelchair that she feels safe on and to have a kid who uh, wants to take a second with me in the middle of a party and where we can be together. Like there's nothing sad about that story. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's, um, it's very cool. You know, it's like a cool story. It's like, you know, goals basically is yeah. what I think. Like, I think, well, you, you're talking about that slowness again too. Um, which I, I think it's all connected the ability to kind of, um, while you were forced to, but, you know, figuring out that, that you can't follow this script about how to be good, about how to be right, which so relates to how you parent. Um, and it does force you to slow down when you're just like, okay, well, what now? Like, right. okay, how do I, if I can't do all the things that people are telling me would be perfect, what do I create? Um, and it's, and it's instinctual which is something we're really losing, I think, as parents in this kind of age of like just an oppressive amount of information and advice mm -hmm. is like, well, what do your instincts say? Mm -hmm. um, we have them, but there's so much noise mm -hmm. and, um, and your ability to kind of say like, well, that noise isn't, isn't for me. So, you know, so I'm just going to be here with my kid. It's really, it's really lovely. Oh, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if you'll cut this, but an episode I would love to hear you all talk about is the gentle parenting or respectful parenting noise. Um, because I find so many of the scripts along with that sort of assume that perfection in language is possible and that some sort of like, emotional equilibrium is possible there. And in my own parenting, I have found whenever I use those scripts, Khalil finds it like <laughs> incredibly insulting. Like, yes. if I'm like, oh, I know it's hard to not keep watching Bluey. I think she's like, well, then fuck you. Turn it back on. Like, <laughs> and and I kind of get that if my husband 
was like, oh, I know it's hard for you when I don't do the dishes. I would be so mad. Um, yeah. So here's what I think relates to one. I, I mean, yes, Jessica, your your request will be granted. We have <laughs> I have like nine gentle parenting episodes in the work. It's like the thing. Other than this, the thing that I could ramble on about the most and that I and that I want to hear more about from other people. But yeah. I hadn't quite thought until this moment about um, about it kind of as as, you know, ableist language like that, you know, people so disabled writers talk. There's a lot of people that talk about language as ableist, not just mm -hmm. the language we use, like, um, uh, I don't know, you know, um, handicapable. <laughs> yeah, handy capable or, um, you know, or even just language about we have a lot of language that's just um, kind of that validates kind of uh, speed and things like yeah. that in our culture. Right. Um, but that that there would be one way to express something to someone is an ableist idea. Right. Mm -hmm. That there's only mm -hmm. one way to communicate to your kid um, that their feelings are validated or that they like. I mean, the good job, good effort thing is one mm -hmm. of the things I get really hung up about. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. But it also relates to to your theme of control, that I think that a script like that is actually just an attempt to control your child disguised as an attempt to validate them and be <laughs> and be accepting. You know oh, what I mean? I it's that. Yeah. It's still just trying to get them to do what you want them to do. Yeah. Um, so it's still in this, I, I think, as you point out, like ableist mindset uh, that the goal of parenting is control. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just, you know, a recipe for major failure and distress, even yeah. if it sounds nice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing that uh, goes over the best in my house is if I say, sorry, dude, and keep it short and keep it moving. And like, I doesn't mean we'll eliminate any you know, meltdowns or tantrums, but it doesn't get under her skin in the same way. Yeah. And it's not a Dr. Becky repair. <laughs> I don't know. I wonder no, what she'd say. You it's know, not a repair. it's not it's... a paragraph of, you know, this is what. Yeah. Sorry, dude. Yeah. That's... I love it. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, there's so much too. I just want to call out you know, I don't think we'll get into it much. Um, but in the book, all of the wonderful kind of reporting you've done that I think is important for people to know about the mm -hmm. ways that um, reproductive justice and disability mm -hmm. justice have a shared vision, I think is mm -hmm. like the positive version of that. And a lot of disturbing stuff around how you know, how disabled people are treated as parents, mm -hmm. right? That medical professionals are afraid to treat disabled pregnant people, um, mm -hmm. that, you know, that forced sterilization is legal or kind of, you know, hands off in a lot of states, mm -hmm. um, that in a lot of states you can remove a child from their parent just because the parent is disabled. Mm -hmm. And then the, the obstacles to parenting um, that disabled parents face. So I, um, I do, I do think that's like a body of knowledge people should have and dig into. Is there anything you want to just touch on about that before we wrap up that like, if you were to kind of, um, 
make one essential conclusion. This is a lot for um, one, just just one word um, about <laughs> chapters of your book. Um, you know, those that chapters, you think people who aren't familiar with this yeah. should know. Yeah. God, I mean, those chapters, each of those chapters should be. Yeah. A multi-volume collection, you know, that the. the Talking about the child welfare system and child removal and disability is is dark and it's really important. And the sort of theme I wound throughout that was mutual aid. And mm. I really, really want people to spend time on that chapter learning about what it is like to be a disabled person who lives in fear of having your child removed and how that is actually quite common and that fear is grounded in reality. Um, I think it's important and I think it's, you know, obviously it's under discussed. Uh, and then I think medical autonomy and the way that is stripped from disabled people, particularly with reproductive health, is also, you know, that chapter, both of those chapters were hard to write, hard to condense. Um, and and hard to keep from just being a litany of complaints about society. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, and I don't think it is only that, but there, it is rough. It is rough to be a pregnant disabled person and it's rough to be a disabled person, particularly someone who's not white, which, you know, I am white and, uh, and the risk of losing your child to the child welfare system is present always. Um, I think something, you know, I, I know we won't talk about today, but that I bring up in the book and that is really tricky to think about is the way that um, selective abortion intersects with disability. You know, there's a lot of, yeah, uh, a lot of cases where disabled people are encouraged, strongly encouraged to abort fetuses who share their disability. Um, and that's pretty tricky. Like that is, I think we really need to think about a medical system that assumes a person, you know, assumes someone would not want to have a child who is like them. And disabled people are told, you know, they're like, well, I like my life and I think a child could like their life. And a doctor will say, oh, oh, no, you're wrong. And that's pretty messed up. And and I think it's really tricky as a feminist and a person who believes strongly in reproductive rights to try to wade into that world and come with, you know, a slightly critical like perspective on a certain subset of abortions. But I do think it's important to talk and think about. Yes, absolutely. Agreed. And and it also has so many indicators for just all sorts of um unhelpful patterns in you know the medical profession and how we think about um quality of life as you talked about and mm -hmm. um what it means to be a person really too yeah i mean and the irony researching the chapter on quality of life and selective abortions or the the, the section of the chapter on that is that for almost every dis disability the average quality of life uh, self-reported is higher than self-reported quality of life of doctors. Uh, <laughs> and so the people like it's are... worse to be a doctor than a disabled person is, is what you're saying or yes. what <laughs> that yeah. doctors rate their qualities of life as their own quality of life. Yes. 
Yes. A Wait. Okay. Own I'm just distinguishing of life that. is lower yes. than a disabled person's quality of life. Yeah. And the doctors are the ones often saying like, you know, who equate death and disability, or who say like this is a life that's, you know, a, a, a not worth living. And I think we really need to think about like what standards are we holding a life to? Yeah. Make someone say that. Right. And imagine saying to someone, well, we, you know, we've tested your fetus and it looks like they have a 50% chance of becoming a doctor. Do you, what do you, you know, we, we recommend that you really think about. Yeah. Right. Again, that goes back to like these scripts that we have about what a good life is. Right. Doctor is like, is like, you know, number one in like, you know, what do you want your kid to be in this, you know, in one version of our society's script, but we're not questioning that. And that's so interesting to to have some nuance. Like I trust that we can talk about abortion with nuance that we can say like, uh, let's have a slightly critical view of this one thing without throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you know? Yeah. I think we can do it. Well, I would recommend too, there's a beautiful book of essays, um, edited by Eliza Hull called We've Got This. And it's mm-hmm. it's stories from disabled parents. So it's like firsthand just um, the experiences of disabled parents, kind of both the the challenges that you talk about, but also just really seeing, yeah, that that disabled people are parents too um, is is I think important. Well thank you so much for all of your time today. Um, I, I really encourage everyone to check out Unfit Parent. When does it come out, Jessica? Uh, well, I'm not positive about the pub date. We That's were okay. Thinking... We're, ex- we're embracing that we don't have control over the future. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, but it's not up to me. You know, we were thinking actually this fall. So I was going to have a fall pub date. But now with this election, um, I'm flirting with the idea of not competing with that and waiting until February. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll be bated breath over here. And then you you also have you have two more books on the way, right? Uh, a picture book about families with disabilities. And we could do another episode about picture books and children's books and how they yeah. portray disability called This Is How We Play and a book yeah. about dating while disabled, dateable, yep. correct? Yep. Yeah, those are both and, in there, um, Ju- July and August of this year. Oh, okay. Summer. Um, great. And then you, I, I just have to mention before we go that you also have a baby on the way. Yes. Yes. We are actually, we're away from home right now. We're down in the States. Um, we are having a baby via surrogacy. So we're near the surrogate and waiting. Uh, we're in those final weeks right now. So we're just kind of waiting for a baby, which is really exciting. And I'm excited to become a parent in a totally different way where with more than 12 hours notice, um, you know, I think it will, I think it will be a completely different experience. And then to watch Khalil as a big sister will be really lovely. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure also very hard at times. Yes. Well, I wish you slowness and presence and equanimity and, uh, <laughs> and imperfection um, in your early days. Thank you. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you for listening to Mother Culture. And like my mom always said, if you need a break, just say E.T. Mother Culture is produced by Opus Knox Media with music by It's Electric. 
Follow us on Instagram at Mother Culture Show and find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to feed the all-knowing algorithm by liking, following, subscribing, rating, and reviewing. Thank you. And please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash motherculturepod, where you can follow us for free or become a paid member for just $5 a month, which honestly doesn't even get you a latte in major American cities these days. You'll support our production and receive some serious perks.